you'll open in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. <clears throat> well, as the nation earlier this, or I guess last week, we once again commemorated the events of 9-11 for the 15th time or so. You know, there's many different ways to remember the tragic events of that day. People seem to remember or even, I guess, uh, commemorate commemorate it differently, but it seems like the phrase that shows up the most often is the phrase, never forget. I don't know if you've noticed that, but you see that phrase, never forget, all over the place. Year after year, and even on the days in between, you'll see banners or patches or hats or flags that say, never forget, never forget. Well, the phrase never forget is not exclusive to, to 9-11. It's, uh, though, the, though President Bush used it quite a bit, I think that's probably how it, how it caught on. Um, it's also been used to remember events like Pearl Harbor or the events of the Holocaust that took place during World War II or even more recently the Virginia Tech massacre. But for most Americans, the phrase never forget triggers memory of smoke and ash and falling towers. It's a powerful phrase that communicates a powerful message. When we say never forget, we don't just mean, hey, don't forget that it was September 11th and on that day, you know, two towers fell and there were thousands of Americans who died and, and what that meant for the change in our foreign policy and, and our feelings of safety, all those things. It, it, meant, it meant a lot. It's a, it a heavy phrase. It, it it reminds us to remember those who died. It's a phrase that encourages us to remember the lessons that we learned and the way that it changed the world. Never forget is a call not just to remember the past, but to learn from the past. It's like when we say remember the Alamo. It's, it's not just a call to remember that it existed, but it's a call to remember the importance of courage and of, and of bravery. See, national tragedies have a way of, of shaping a nation. They change us. They, they teach us something, something we don't want to forget. Well, the text that we have before us tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 4, contains the record of a national tragedy in Israel. And it too has a lesson that we should never forget. But this is more than just a political catchphrase. Here we actually have a biblical mandate to remember this event. So if you'll hold your finger here in 1 Samuel, flip over now to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. You don't, if you don't, you don't have to go, I'll read it. But if you'd like to see it, Jeremiah chapter 7. We'll just read one verse here in verse 12. Look at Jeremiah 7, 12. The Lord is speaking through the prophet saying, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Let me read that one more time. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and then see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Here in the book of Jeremiah, we have a biblical call to think back and remember the events of 1 Samuel chapter 4. 
He eventually goes on to say that because you didn't learn, speaking, Jeremiah speaking for the Lord, because you didn't learn from the things that took place in Israel's history and what eventually takes place at Shiloh, God says he'll repeat it and he is going to make it worse. And that's what he does in the Babylonian captivity. So I want to start with that tonight because it should give us a sense of context and we should be asking, what happened at Shiloh? What is it that happened? And more importantly, what lessons do we need to learn from this tragedy? Sure, it's good to never forget 9-11 and to remember the Alamo. But as God's people, we need to also remember Shiloh. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at how God chose, how God's chosen people, Israel, the people whom God promised that he was going to, to bless and through them to bless the whole world, they are living in incredibly heavy spiritual darkness. Our story here in chapter 4 shows us we're going to see that dar- the darkness is coming to a sen- almost a sense of a climax, the darkest part of the night. And we see even here that God is closing one chapter, one dark chapter in Israel's history, and he's opening another, and it is beginning dark. But we know that hope is coming. So let's read, I'm going to read this in two sections. Let's let's read this first section. We're going to start in in verse 2, and let's read 1 Samuel 4, starting in verse 2. I guess I'll start halfway through verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in a line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battle, on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Let's pray. Father, I come, I come with your word tonight trembling. Would you, by your spirit... Open our eyes to see your beauty, to see the danger of sin, and the great joy of knowing Christ. 
I pray that tonight, Father, that you would establish your kingdom in our hearts and that as we hear your word, you would build our faith. Tonight, Father, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Speak to us. Speak to us through your word. And change us, I pray. It's in the name of Christ that I ask these things. Amen. So what should we learn from Shiloh? What is the lesson that we should never forget? I would suggest that the main idea in this text tonight, the main idea before us is this, that when God's people persist in sin, God will temporarily remove his blessing and protection from them. This is not an act of cruelty, but an act of mercy in the hopes that as we taste the barrenness of life without him, we would repent and turn to him. So let me draw your attention to several key points in this text that I think will help draw out this truth for us. One of the first things I'd like for you to notice about this text is that in our troubles, we expose what we believe about God. Our troubles have this way of exposing what we believe about God. Now remember, in Israel, things have been dark for some time, but now the nation is getting ready to walk through their darkest days going all the way back to their time of slavery in Egypt. In verses 2 and 3, we begin seeing that there is a national crisis that's taking place. Even though verse 4 or verse 1 begins with this bright positive note that we read last week, that Samuel, who is being portrayed almost like a savior, a little mini savior in Israel, well, he disappears. In fact, we are not going to hear about Samuel for a while. The first three chapters of Samuel have focused entirely on this boy, Samuel. His birth, his calling, his growing up, and the things that are taking place in the tabernacle. And now, all of a sudden, he disappears. The text zooms out. It broadens out from one boy or one family in one tabernacle to the whole nation of Israel, to a national crisis. And now there's a new focus. The first three chapters focused on Samuel, and now the next three chapters focus on the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant. And we're not going to see Samuel again until chapter 7, when the ark comes back into Israel. So even though the text begins with a little bit of hope, things are about to go from bad to worse. And things are going to get worse, a lot worse, before they get better. Now, Israel is in trouble here. Even though God's people are God's people, and even though they are now in the promised land, they're no longer safe because of the Philistines, right? We all know about the Philistines from our children's time in Sunday school, right? The Philistines are a major player in the book of Samuel, and here we're introduced to them uh, in this book for, for the, one of the first times of what is going to be many times. Now, the Philistines, as you, I'm sure you remember, were an incredibly violent 
seafaring people who had come from the Aegean, uh, from the Aegean Islands. So they had come over to the borders of Judah and they had established, during the time of Judges in Israel, they had established five major military type cities and they had uh, goals of conquest. They were going to take over. They were setting up shop and they were looking for more territory and the goal was to take plunder and to take slaves. Now just think about what that would be like. Just, we've never known anything like that. Just imagine if there was an encampment of guerrilla warfare type guys sitting on the coast of North Carolina and they had plans to make their way across the Appalachians. Right? That would be a terrifying thing to face. And this is what is happening in Israel. Now, by most accounts, the Philistines were the most technologically and militarily advanced group during this time in ancient history. And for many years, they would prove to be, and had been at, at this point, a constant threat to Israel. Now, before we go any further... Since, since we hear and we're going to hear so much about the Philistines, let me give you a tip. A, a tip about how to understand the Philistines when we read about them, especially in the books uh, or in the book of First and Second Samuel. It doesn't matter how technologically advanced they were. The Philistines were an instrument. An instrument in the hands of God for his purposes, to carry out his judgment on his people. I read somewhere a healthy tip, and this has been helpful for me as I've been reading, that you could think about, if, when you're reading the history of Israel, you can use the Philistines as a barometer. Like a barometer to tell how Israel is doing. When the Israel is conquering the Philistines, they're doing well, right? Spiritually, they're doing well. But when they're being conquered by the Philistines, things are not going well spiritually in Israel. So that'll help you uh, keep up with what's going on in, in the nation. When Israel experienced defeat at the hands of the Philistines, it was always because of Israel's sin. Always. Always. And this is why the elders here in verse 3, look down in verse 3, they say, why has the Lord defeated us today? They didn't say, why have the Philistines defeated us today? Who defeated them? The Lord. Here, Israel, the elders of Israel are asking the right question. They're asking, what is God doing? What is going on? Why has this happened to us? The problem is, they don't wait long enough to try to find the right answer. You see, what was really happening in Israel was that the Lord God was judging Israel for their rebellion and for their idolatry. It was crazy to me as they seemed to even figure this out. They knew that something was wrong. They knew that the defeat was a sign of God's disfavor. And, and we know the history of Israel, the cycle, right? The sin cycle. This was a part of the pattern. And it was a part of the pattern of the way God established his relationship with Israel. If you were to go back and read Leviticus chapter 26, you would read about how God promised his people that if they obeyed, there would be blessings. And if they disobeyed, when they forgot the Lord and disobeyed his commands, he would do a specific thing. He would raise up enemies to defeat them. He told them. He gave them a heads up. When you forget me, I will raise up people and they will slaughter you. This is God speaking to his people. Friends, 
Let us once again learn from Israel. Let's remember again this week the constant danger of forgetting the Lord. The danger of living contrary to His commands. There are no small sins. There are no safe sins. Sin is dangerous. And there's no safe sin. And when we sin, even as God's people... We place ourselves in the path of his wrath. Now, I know that when we hear Bible history, it can be a little bit tempting to zone out, right? Because we've read this stuff before. We read about the Philistines. We read these numbers. And, and some people are slaughtered and all these things. And we just kind of zone out. But it, but it really helps me to remember that these were real people with real lives. There were real burials and real funerals and real widows and real orphans that came out of this. And on this day, Israel was defeated. There's really two major defeats we just read. The first one, which is small, where there were 4,000 fathers and husbands and sons who were pierced with swords and cut open. I don't know, limbs were cut off. All, all sorts of horrific things. And then the Philistines were actually gearing up for a bigger attack. They were marching towards the capital. How do you, how do you think the people of Israel felt? Desperate? Afraid? You think it mixed things up a little bit? You think it affected their worship or the way that they talked in their homes? You see, this reminds us of an important lesson. That when troubles come into our lives, it exposes what we believe about God. Troubles reveal our theology. I don't just mean the theology you talk about in Sunday school. I mean the theology that you believe. Our troubles reveal what we actually believe about God. You see, prosperity and wealth and ease and health and good times, those are gifts from God, but they have this way of lulling us to sleep, of thinking that we can coast, thinking that we can just get by. But what happens when the bad times come? What happens when the diagnosis is not good? Or when the money dries up? What happens when we are surrounded by our enemies? You see, our troubles have a way of cutting through the veneer of our lives and revealing what our faith is actually like. And this is what happened in Israel. Sure, they may have all had their festivals and their sacrifices. Sure, they had their priests and their ark and their you know, rituals. But that was all during a time of peace. What would Israel do when they were surrounded by the Philistines? Well, chapter 4 tells us. It records Israel's response and in doing so, revealed Israel's dismal theology. It exposed what Israel really believed about God. So let's call this, if we move, I don't know, if you do notes, let's call this the second point. Israel's theology, and I like to call this the gimme God's goodies. Did you catch that? Wake up. Gimme God's goodies. Sounds like a Bernstein Bears book. Okay, so the scenario is this. The, the elders of Israel thought, hmm, okay, uh, 4,000 dead. This did not go so well. And since the Philistines are still on the warpath, let's mix it up. Let's try, let's try something different. Now, even though they were supposed to know that the problem wasn't their battle plan, the problem was what? Their sin. 
The problem was their sin. Even though they seemed to even know that, that the Lord had defeated them because of their sin, what did they do? Did they seek Samuel's advice? Did they consider their ways? Did they repent? No. Instead, they came up with their own plan. Down in verse 3, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Why didn't they do that the first time? Right? I mean, they didn't do that the first time, and now they think it's a good idea. But then as we get to verse 4, we realize that even this isn't working out for them too well. Because the ark is carried in by who? Those guys. Eli's two wicked sons. You remember them from chapters 2 and 3? The, the jokers who stole the offerings of worshipers and who slept with prostitutes in the gate of the temple? Hophni and Phinehas were the ones bringing in the ark. And so we, learn, we get a picture right away. This is not going to go well. Now, in one sense, right? In one sense, bringing the ark in isn't in itself a terrible idea. All throughout Israel's history, we see how they would follow the ark, right? And when, when they were in the wilderness with Moses, the ark would go up first and then they would follow. They, when they crossed the Jordan, the ark went in first. When they went around Jericho, they followed the ark. It's a picture of God goes before us. That's, that's the picture. The ark was a sacred, portable box that was kept behind a thick veil when it was in the most holy place. And it's important to remember the ark symbolized a couple of different things. Probably the most significant thing, the, the main thing, was that it symbolized God's presence. Really in a very literal sort of way. It, that it symbolized that the presence of God was there among them, but it had some things in it. A couple of things to note. First of all, it had the Ten Commandments in it. Well, what are the Ten Commandments, Romania? Well, it's, that's God's law. It's, it's a reminder to the people that with the presence of God comes the presence of his law. You can't have God and not have his law. You can't. They had a physical reminder with them. But the ark also reminded them of mercy. The lid of the ark was no, it's known as the mercy seat. It reminded the people that and through annual sacrifice, blood would, an animal would be killed and blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, reminding them that, yes, when God is near, there is law, but when there's law, there is sin. And when there's God and there's law and there's sin, there's mercy. It's a reminder. God dwelling among his sinful people, but there's mercy. Through blood. It's an incredibly rich picture, but what do Hophni, Hophni and Phineas do? They pick up the ark. These are two men who have disregarded God's law blatantly, openly. All of Israel knew how they trampled God's law. And so what do they do? They, they picked it up as if, hey, we're good. We're the priests. We, we can do this. They, and they blasphemed and they disregarded all the precious truths. Just think about this for a moment. They wanted a God, but they didn't want a God that would rule over them. They didn't want a God who would require blood for their sin. They didn't want a God who would tell them what to do. They just wanted a God that would defeat their enemies. 
They, want, they treated the ark like a lucky rabbit's foot. One commentator called this rabbit's foot theology, right? And I think that's helpful. They treated it like a lucky rabbit's foot or a divine power box and assumed that, that if they had the ark, then they had God on their side and therefore all, all is good. You see, the problem is they wanted God on their own terms. Do you see it? They wanted God on their own terms and they assumed because they were God's people that they had his favor. Don't you think that we're inclined to do that today? Do you think we do the same thing? No, we don't pick up the ark and take it into battle. But don't you think we're inclined to do the same thing today? Think about your relationship with God. Are there ever times when you're thinking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What can God do to meet my immediate needs? Remember, Israel had enemies all around them. And what were they concerned about? They just wanted safety. They just wanted to feel safe. They didn't want God. They just wanted his goodies. They wanted God's goodies. The stuff he could give him, but they didn't want God himself. People, we, we have a tendency to use religion and to try to use God, not to get God, but to get God's stuff. And do you know what happens when you try to get God's stuff without God? You get slaughtered. Are we not in this same danger? Eli's two sons picked up the ark of God which contained his law, his rule over them, but, he, but they had disregarded his law. They had lived contrary to it. They assumed that they would get God's blessing just because they were in the family. But friends, it does not work like that. God is not a genie in the bottle. He is not Santa Claus. He is not to be tinkered with. Israel's priests had forgotten what we are so inclined to forget. That God's blessings only come through obedience to God's law. Let me say that again. God's blessings, church, only come through obedience to God's holy requirements. And when we forget this, we do the same thing that Israel did. We tinker. We use God for God's goodies, but we don't want God. The ark should remind us that blessing comes only through obedience. It comes through obedience to God's word. And the ark reminds us that even that he's even dealt with what happens when we fail. That when we fail to obey, he's made provision for sinners. There has been a blood sacrifice. So there is mercy available for sinners. If you repent. You see the picture? So we, we enjoy God's blessings as we obey. And what happens when we fail? Well, there's mercy available through repentance. But what's repentance doing? It's, it's going back. It's acknowledging your need for God. And it's going back to obedience. Right? God's blessings only come through God's, uh, only come through obedience. And God's blessings to sinners only come through repentance. Obedience and repentance. Church, can I just pause and ask for you to just think about your spiritual life? I know that there are many in here who have been a Christian for a long time. For many of you, the Christian life may feel routine. But can I just ask you, how much, how much effort 
do you put into your spiritual life to know God? How much of the effort that you put into church stuff and Bible stuff and studies and praying and fellowship, how much of that is to get God, to get Him, to get Him, not God's goodies, not man's approval, not the fuzzy religious feeling, not friendship, to get God? How much of your relationship, how much of your Christian life is described with communion with God? That's the only thing that matters. He is the prize. He is the goal. How much do you seek Him? How much do you want Him? Have you given Him a thought today? Have you chased Him? Have you pursued Him? Have you considered how your sin separates you from Him? Church, do we want God or do we want His stuff? Do you want to just avoid hell? Do you want to just stop feeling guilty? Do you want me to think you're a good person? Do you want other people to think that you're a swell Christian? Or do you want God? You see, Israel was guilty of the same thing that their wicked priests were. They presumed upon God's blessings and forgot they were guilty. God's blessing only comes through obedience or repentance. You want more of God, then you must remember that sin leads to defeat and separation, but obedience and repentance leads to blessing and fellowship. What would God do in our church if we forsook our sins? We come to a third point in the text in that we see how God brings judgment on his people through defeat. We could spend so much talking, wow, we're through three verses. We could spend so much time talking about verses 4 through 11 where in, in these verses, God, they detail God's judgment on his own people that comes through defeat. And it's amazing how death just dominates this chapter because that's a reminder to us that Sin dominated the lives of Israel and their believers uh, and their leaders, and so death follows. Death always follows sin. So I want you to notice quickly three things about the outcome of Israel's theology. Death, judgment, and exile. That's what, that was the result of their bad theology. Let's think about death quickly. In the first battle, there were 4,000 slaughtered. And then in the second, 30,000 slaughtered. Church, Let's not forget the wages of sin is death. Let's fear sin. Let's run from sin. Let's remember that what we sow, we will reap death. We also see judgment, just like God promised back in chapter 2. Eli's two wicked sons fall under God's judgment, and in the same day they were both killed. Though they were God's priests, they were in God's family. They carried the ark itself so that God would kill other people and God turned his sword against them. His own people. God himself killed them. Friends, let's not forget the truth of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and or all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. No one will escape, no sin will escape God's wrath. Especially not those who despise God's word and think they're safe just because they're in God's family. 
We also think of exile. In verse 11, we, we spend so much time thinking about this, but in verse 11 we see the, 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 the sad fact that the ark of God was captured. And we'll, we'll talk more about this in a moment, but we should note that this is highly symbolic. In, in Psalm chapter 78, verse 60, the psalmist looks back on this, and on this event, and says these chilling words, that the Lord forsook his dwelling at Shiloh. The tent where he dwelt among mankind. See, the Philistines would eventually go and sack Shiloh. And the capture of the ark didn't mean that God was captured. That'd be silly. The ark was captured because God had left. God had already left. The ark wasn't the one exiled. Israel was exiled because God's glory had left. More on that in a minute. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli, Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle, and I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among your people. Oh, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for forty years. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and her father-in-law and her husband were dead. She bowed and gave birth, for the pains came upon her. And about the time of her, of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. Verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Brings us to a fourth point in this text where we see the glory is gone. I hope you notice how death dominated these verses. Sin leads to death. God has promised this. This was his standard. And just as God prophesied back in chapter 2 and 3 that Eli's house would be ravaged by death, guess what? God kept his word. He always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. But the second half of this chapter focuses on two specific deaths. The death of Eli and the death of his son's wife, his daughter-in-law. Let's think about the death of Eli first. We see that Eli seemed to know that he was in trouble because he seemed to be waiting for bad news. He was anxious. The the text says in, in verse 17 that when he heard of the defeat and the death of his sons, he that wasn't even his main concern. His main concern was what? In verse 13, it says that his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when he heard that the ark had been captured, the news literally killed him. 
He fell over, broke his neck, and died. And let me just say, there's a lot of broken necks in Samuel. And God's breaking the necks. Goliath has his neck broken. And on Sunday, we're going to see the little Philistine god, Dagon. His neck gets broken too. But that's Sunday. It's fun. God breaks a lot of necks in Samuel. And Eli knew of God's word through Samuel that all of his house would be, fun, would be punished forever because of their iniquity. And he seems to have resigned himself to that. But it's, it seems as if he never could have imagined that it would get this bad. He never imagined that the sins of his family would lead to the capturing of the ark, which are going to affect the nation as a whole. But we also have another figure in this story, a surprising figure. It's the wife of Phineas. The story strangely now moves to focus on his widow. And like many places in Samuel, this story is just dripping with symbolism, which I think is why it's actually included here. One of the things to notice here is that this is a birth, but there's no celebration. That's odd. Births are always a time of celebration. And instead, we get an unusual amount about the birth pains. That's also something that doesn't really happen in the Bible very much. The pains of birth that are associated with delivery, and these, I think, are intended to remind us of something. It's intended to have us think back that the pain of birth is brought on by what? Sin. The consequence of sin. Just think about that. I was thinking about this when my second daughter was born, that this is a morbid thought, I guess, but even as we celebrate life, we can't escape the fact that because of sin, all life ends in death. Sin leads to death. And here, for Mrs. Phineas, the greatest agony was not childbirth. The greatest agony was the news that the ark had been captured. And just like with Eli, that news literally killed her. It killed her. But not before she uttered the chilling words in verses 21 uh, and uh, in verse 22 that the glory has departed from Israel. News that was so terrible that she named her son Ichabod, which means the glory is gone. The glory has left Her despair was so pronounced because she realized that God had removed his presence and his blessing from his people. Isn't that a disturbing thought? I mean, isn't God merciful? I mean, he removes his blessing from his people. But as disturbing as this thought is, this is consistent with the Old Testament, which shows us that when God's people persist in sin... When we persist in rebellion and idolatry and when we forget the Lord, God will remove his power, his blessing, and the joy of his presence from us. God will remove his presence from us, his, the joy of his presence from us when we persist in sin. Now we could spend a lot of time thinking about this, but we're not, we're not going to have time to do that. But let's just think, what should we learn from this? What should we learn from the fact that the glory of God left Israel? Jeremiah, as we read at the beginning, calls us to remember when God wrote Ichabod over the walls of Israel. When God wrote Ichabod over the tabernacle at Shiloh, over the walls of Hophni and Phinehas' home. When God writes Ichabod, what should we take away from this? Well, I think we should at least receive it as a warning. 
that we should not seek God only for his goodies, but to seek God through obedience and repentance with the aim of finding him, of finding God. But I think we also learn something important about the character of God. We must face the sobering fact that if God's people do not take God seriously, if we don't take obedience seriously, then the Lord can write Ichabod over our nation, the Lord could write Ichabod over our church, and the Lord could write Ichabod over our personal lives. So let me be frank again just for a moment. Does the glory of God dwell in our church? Are we a people, just think about this, are we a people who are consumed with seeking God for God? Or do we just want to stuff? Do we regularly enjoy the blessing of his presence? We think about our services. Think about your fellowship. Do we regularly enjoy overflowing blessing of his presence or do we live on memories? Do we live on ritual and faint traditions? Do we regularly see God's power in our spiritual lives? Are we a people characterized by obedience and repentance? Or is sin just some minor affair, a nuisance, and we presume upon God's blessings? All of those things could be applied to either our church, and I mean Trinity, and they all could also be applied to our lives as individuals. Now, I'm not going to answer those questions for us. I can't do that. But I do want to say this. I've been at Trinity for almost two years now. And I've seen wonderful signs of life in our church. I've seen brotherly love. I've experienced it. I've seen service and generosity and faithfulness. But I've not seen many people weeping over sin. I've heard so little talk of personal repentance. Sure, we, we talk about sin like big picture sin. We'll talk about other people's sin. We'll talk about sin categories. We'll talk about our nation's sin. But where are God's people who are broken over sin that they have committed today, this week? The sin in our own lives, the sin that remains. Church, if we don't take God seriously, if we don't take his law seriously, if we don't recognize our constant need to come to his mercy seat, will not God write Ichabod over the walls of our church? This is not a game. This is real. He killed 30,000 of his people. This is not a game. God takes sin seriously. At this point in Samuel, we're coming to a point of ultimate darkness. God is starting over. He's killing off his old regime and he's starting new. But there's hope. Remember the text we've seen throughout each week. Don't forget about Samuel. Don't forget about Samuel. And more importantly, we don't need to forget about God's promises. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, God had told Israel, I will make you, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. God may have removed many of the blessings of his presence from his people Israel, but God didn't really leave them. He didn't really, I don't think, really leave Israel. He was preparing the way for repentance, which leaves us with the question, 
If the Lord writes Ichabod over a nation, if he writes Ichabod over a church, or if this is a period of your life where you are in complete spiritual dryness because of sin, is there any hope? Is that the end? Is there anything that we can do to return to God's glory? Is there anything that we can do to see God's power work among us again? The answer is yes. You see, friends, Ichabod is not the final word. Emmanuel is. We can't forget about Emmanuel. Our sin cries, Ichabod, the glory has departed. But God's grace cries, Emmanuel, God has come to dwell with sinners. And Emmanuel went to a cross, and he heard the cry, Ichabod, so that I wouldn't have to. By repentance and faith. Church, the gospel overcomes Ichabod with Emmanuel. This is the hope for our church. Our hope is not cleaning it up. Our hope is repentance and turning to Christ who is paid, who's paid for our sins. His blood has been sprinkled so that we can find mercy. And as God's people, as we as God's people, we must recognize that the blessings that come from knowing God, his power, his favor, and his presence are found not in tradition, not in ritual not in appearances, but in repentance and obedience. So church, let us be a people, let us be a church who go and sin no more. But don't forget, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He's Emmanuel, God with us. We close this in prayer. Father, would you work among us for the glory of your Son, for the good of the church, for your fame among the nations. I ask this in your name. Amen.